And you know that Martin Place is, um, because of the, by virtue of the fact that it's a place with big buildings, it's quite an echo chamber as well. So we're standing there, we're doing our thing, we're dressed in all our military finery and we've got our ceremonial uniforms on with our big white leather pith helmets. And my boss is standing directly in front of me, about a metre away, facing us, the band. And um, they're about to, they get to the point where we're about to do the first hymn. And so, because, you know, military bands are all lined up, there's 50 of us all lined up here, everyone needs to be able to see what's going on. So he has to get everyone from standing there with their instruments to the ready position with a couple of big flourishes. And so he does the first flourish, which is like that, and that's the cue for everyone to pick up their instruments, whatever they're playing, and be ready. And the second one, when he's about to conduct, and he goes in for the flourish, and it's as if time slows down, because his hand hits his pith helmet with such force that it begins to take off and spin. And I'm watching this thing spin, and I'm not joking, it got, it's time slowed down. And it's spinning, and then I'm thinking, oh no. And then it starts descending. And it hits the concrete in Martin Place and goes, donk, 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 donk. And he's standing right in front of me, and his eyes are screaming, Earth, swallow me now. Earth, swallow me now. So I'm standing there, and to make it worse, everyone behind me goes, I'm biting my cheeks. I'm thinking about dead animals. I'm doing everything I can to not laugh at this. Because not only are there tons and tons and tons of people there, this is now being televised as well. And he will always be remembered as the man who sent his helmet flying on a very solemn occasion. When I was thinking about telling a failure story, I thought about telling one of my own. I have a very rich catalogue to draw from. But I decided it was more fun to tell someone else's embarrassing story. Anyone ever watch, like, the fail videos on the internet? Yeah. Anyone? Come on, admit it. Yeah. Okay. Nothing like a bit of schadenfreude, is there? You know, taking pleasure at someone else's misfortune. Uh, it, it's better than laughing at our own stuff sometimes, isn't it? It's easier to laugh at other people than it is to laugh at ourselves. Have you guys ever had any type of, like, failure or humiliating experience? So, yeah? Okay, good. So we're not alone in that, are we? All right. That's excellent. Okay. Okay. Um, None of us take pleasure in our own misfortunes, but there's failure and there's failure, isn't there? There's the, the kind of failure that's you don't pass a test, the cake doesn't turn out, whatever, and we can laugh it off, or we might even be a little bit worse and we might be a bit red-faced about something. But then there are other failures in life that are significantly more impactful. They're, they're the sort of stuff that actually, it can be devastating. It can be devastating to us, our families, relationships. Um, it's the sort of stuff that doesn't just leave us red-faced. It's the sort of stuff that can actually impact us in some very significant way. So the issue I want us to consider this morning is that we can't avoid failure. It is, it is part of life. Um, as much as we would want to, we can't avoid it. It is part of life. We are going to trip and we are going to fall and we are going to mess up in all sorts of ways, some little and ultimately, unfortunately, some big ways. So the issue is never will we trip or fall at, at some point or in some way. We will. The issue is what will we do about it when it happens, especially when something profound happens. And so this morning, what I want to look at is this question of what if God 
chooses to save us, not in spite of our failures, but actually through our failures? What if the very things that we think will break us are in fact the things that make us? And to help us out, I want to look at the prequel to one of the biggest failures ever. And it's in Luke 22. And the story goes like this, that Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem for the last time, right almost his crucifixion, his arrest and torture and crucifixion is imminent. And so he sends a couple of his disciples into town to find a room where he and his disciples can celebrate the Passover. You might know the story. They go in there, they find this room, they set it up. So Jesus goes in there and he celebrates the Passover with his disciples, but not in the standard way when you're referring everything back to the Exodus and telling that story. Jesus actually gives it a whole new meaning while he's in that room with his disciples. And he says, this bread is my body which is broken for you. And this cup is my blood which is shed for you. And I will not drink it again with you until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom. In other words, you know, that day when I finally come back and I put every, the world to right and I'm ruling and reigning again, that's the day we will do this again. But until then, I'm, I'm going away. So it's a really solemn occasion, made even more solemn by the fact that he then goes on to say, and in fact, the thing that's going to precipitate this is someone's going to betray me and the person who's going to betray me is in the room with us now. It's one of you here. Now, you think you would hear a pin drop, but then it goes on to say, A dispute arose among them as to who would be the greatest. Wow. Now, Jesus is a lot more self-controlled than I am. At that point, I would have said something like, did you hear what I just said? But he says, let me tell you what true greatness looks like. You want to talk about greatness? Let me tell you what true greatness looks like. And and, and as, as a clue, look at me. Look at me and look about what I'm about to go through and that'll give you some idea about what true greatness looks like. And then he turns to Peter, and this is the verse I want to focus on this morning. He turns to Peter and he says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Why is that important? Because there is a direct connection between the stuff that Jesus was talking about in terms of what true greatness actually is and what Peter was about to go through. Because remember, sometime before that, Jesus had said to Peter, Simon, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So Peter means rock. On this rock I will build my church. Jesus was telling Peter, you are going to have a foundational leadership role in this body that I'm about to unleash on the earth called the church. And now we see how that was going to happen. Peter was going to be made ready for that mantle. Peter was going to be made ready to carry that responsibility in the best way possible, not by simply being tapped on the shoulder and filling a vacancy, not by reading a few leadership blogs, not by doing some sort of management course. (coughs) Peter was going to be prepared for leadership through the crucible of testing and failure. And the very thing that had the potential to break him completely would actually turn out to be the thing that would make him and make him fit for that role. There's this bit in this story that really troubles me when Jesus says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. You know, again, if I'd have been Simon, I would have said, sorry, what was that? Well, I've, I've prayed for you that your faith... No, no, not that bit. The bit about Satan wanting to sift me? Yeah, Satan wants to sift you. But it's going to be okay because I've prayed for you. I bet, oh, that's lovely. But I guess, 
and this is just my opinion, Jesus, what if instead of praying that my faith doesn't fail, you protect me from that sifting in the first place? Just a thought. Because, listen, hear my logic here, right? No sifting and testing, no fear of failure. If I don't go through a hard time, I can't mess it up. Why don't we cut out the middleman and you protect me from going through a hard time? Anyone with me on that? Yeah. See, the Bible would be very different if I'd have been there, wouldn't it? Very, very, very different. I'm just thinking how that would write out. It'd be like, man, this Adrian guy was sad. Like, why on earth did Jesus ever think that he'd be any good at anything? Like, and then it would have, and then Adrian ran away, um, and was never heard of again. Opened a ceramic shop and lived happily ever after. And so, a ceramic shop. I'm not good at ceramics. I don't know why I thought of that. Anyway. One of the most common things I come up, I guess, personally and pastorally is the whole issue of why doesn't God just protect us from bad things? You know, if God knows, if God knows everything, if God knows bad things are coming our way, why doesn't he just protect us from it? I mean, why didn't Jesus just protect Peter? Now, I realise there's a much bigger question here, one that we've been trying to answer for millennia, and I don't have time to get into that. But as it relates to this specific situation, why didn't Jesus protect Peter? I think the answer really is very, very simple. And that is because some things you can only learn the hard way, yes? Sometimes we only learn by coming to the end of ourselves. Some things we only learn through failure and pain and humiliation. Sometimes that's the only way we learn things. Jesus calls this being sifted, which is kind of a euphemism. It it, it means to separate the good from the bad. Uh, And it is a process whereby we get shaken and stirred and thrown around and pummeled and all the, all the bad bits uh, kind of come to the surface in us. Does anyone know that experience at all? About being sifted when you go through a hard time and it kind of really starts to sort you out a little bit? And there's a bunch of ways we can be sifted. There, there is, of course, the first way that, that Jesus is talking about. The Bible says that we have an enemy of our souls who is implacably opposed against us. He comes only to rob, steal, kill and destroy. Warfare is real. We need to understand that. That is, people who belong to Jesus, who are trying to live the way of Jesus, we are going to experience opposition from a very real and personal evil who is, who is opposed to us furthering that cause and opposed to us having the life that he wants us to have. And he'll do anything and everything to stop us. Sometimes people are the cause of our pain. They're not necessarily explicitly out to get us, although that sometimes does happen, doesn't it? But sometimes people just really mess us up out of their own brokenness, but it messes us up too. Sometimes circumstances conspire against us. And last but not least, sometimes it's just our own dumb choices, yes? Anyone relate to that? Sometimes the mess we find ourselves in is precisely a mess of our own making. And so for a while we get pummeled. God could stop it all, but he doesn't. Not to hurt us, but to help shape us. And I don't know about you, but I know that some of the most valuable lessons that I have learned in my life, I've learned the hard way. Yeah? I haven't learned them at a conference. I haven't learned them in my quiet times. I haven't learned them from a podcast. I've learned them because I've had to go through the ringer. That's where I've learned some of my best lessons. And the problem is, though, we bump into sometimes 
besides our general desire to want to avoid trouble and pain and failure and all of those things, we kind of have this implicit theology that says that that if God blesses us if we do the right thing, that if we're we're travelling well with God, then that will be um, demonstrated or manifested in the fact that our life will actually be going well. And I think, have you read your Bible? Like, seriously, how do you draw that conclusion? There's nothing in the Scriptures that says that just because we belong to Jesus and just because we follow Him faithfully, we will be immune or protected from this stuff or the consequences of this stuff. It actually says the opposite. Jesus says things like, take up your cross and follow me. And it's going to cost you. You need, to, you need to actually sit down and weigh up what this is going to cost you and see if you are prepared to do this type of thing. Then you come across this thing in um, 1 Peter 4.2 where Peter says to the church in Rome, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the trouble that you're going through right now to test you as though something strange was happening to you. Like, why are you acting as if this is, this is incongruous? Why are you acting as if this is some sort of anomaly? This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I was reading in Matthew 14 the other day as well, the story about where Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him because he's going somewhere else, but he sends them into a storm, like into a storm. Why would you do that? Because sometimes the best lessons are learned in storms, yes? There was obviously something they needed to learn that they couldn't learn any other way than by being in a situation where there was no help but Jesus getting into their boat and showing them how it's done. Sometimes that is the only way we learn and that is where our best lessons are learned. We need to move on. Jesus knows Peter is about to fail but he doesn't prevent him from failing and he doesn't protect him from the consequences of failing. And we know that Peter failed big time. In fact, it's one of the biggest failures ever in recorded history. We have it here. We sit here now, 2,000 years later, talking about the fact that this guy who was the one who was like, I will go anywhere with you, I will die with you, there's no stopping me following you. The minute it was put to the test, he denied Jesus and ran the other way. Not once, not twice, but three times. It's a pretty big failure, isn't it? This is one of these catastrophic failures that can really define you, right? It's a pretty big failure. And Jesus knows that Peter is about to do that, right? But Peter actually doesn't know that he's about to do that. He's all like, no, look, Jesus, I know you're going to go through some trouble, but don't you, you can count on me. I'm never going to desert you. But Jesus actually goes on in this text and says to him, actually, Peter, you will tonight. And three times, three times you're actually going to deny me. So, Peter, you're going to fail, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Why pray for that? Why pray that your faith may not fail? Here's what I think. Because what is going in us, what is going on in us, is far more important than what is happening to us. So, Jesus is saying, I'm praying that that thing that is at work in you, that that will keep going and that will grow deeper and deeper despite what is happening to you on the surface, Peter. A number of years ago, um, I was sitting in a classroom with a bunch of theological students telling them my story about how I crashed and burned out and was no longer in ministry anymore. It was a a bag of fun. Um, And I was a living, breathing, cautionary tale about what happens to people when they insist on going it alone. And it was a really humbling moment in a long line of humbling moments uh, for me. 
And the reason that was was because I'd actually been a very good student. Um, at theological college, I topped the year every year. I even was ducks of the college. That means you... It sounds stupid, but it means you win, okay? Um, and I got a $25 gift certificate. So watch out. Um, I was like, really? If I'd have known it was 25 bucks, I wouldn't have bothered. Um, $25 gift certificate. We'd planted a church. That church had actually um, grown quite well and quite quickly at the, at the beginning. And I was even invited... To go, uh, to go back and talk to our conference once about what we were doing and how successful this thing was actually becoming. Uh, and then it all blew up. And I went from being that guy to the guy who couldn't get a job for two years, who had to labour on building sites when the, job was when the work was available and stack freezers at, at night. So I was that guy. So on the surface, everything was a bit of a tragedy. But that was only part of the story because there was something far more important going on beneath the surface. See, for years I'd preached a whole range of things which were true. They were absolutely true. And I believed them. But there came a point where, where the stuff that I was saying, I really had to experience at a whole other level. You know what I'm saying? And so I would, be, I would tell people that you could depend on God, but I don't think I'd ever been in a position where I really had to depend on God. And when I say I couldn't get a job for two years, I could not get a job for two years. The best I could get was temping and little bits and pieces here and there. And so you can imagine that, you know, a lot of my prayers were, God, I need a job, I need a job, I need a job, I need, I need security, I need security. Well, what do you think God was teaching me in that time? Where was my security? Was it in a contract or was it in him? And I can tell you, after two years, we never failed to pay our bills or have food on our table. To this day, I still think it's a miracle how that happened. But I was talk, always talking about being dependent on God, but I learned what it was to be dependent on God. I would also tell people that, you know, we need to rely on God's grace, that without Him we're nothing, and with Him we can do anything. You know, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. But it wasn't until I was in a position where I could do nothing that I really had to rely on God's grace. That God had to do absolutely everything for us. And one of the big ones for me in particular was if I'm not the senior pastor of a church, then what am I? Am I still loved? Am I still valued? Do I, am I still important to God? Do I still have something to offer? And you know what I found after two years? There was no change in the way I felt valued. I was always valued. Whether I was the Pope or whether I was packing freezers, incidentally, I can't become the Pope, but <laughs> whether I was packing freezers or whether I was were leading a church, it didn't matter. I was no less loved and I was no less valuable. So my identity and my self-worth was not, never to be found in what I did. It was to be found in who I am in Him. So there were all these lessons, all this stuff that I thought I knew that I learned in a whole other way. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? See, we may, we may fail. We may fail. But our faith doesn't have to. We may lose our lives in the sense of all the things that we have constructed around ourselves, where our security is, our investment. You know, we may lose everything around us, but we don't have to lose our souls in the process. What could break us can actually make us if, if we go with it. You know, there's an old saying that says, the person who falls off the horse 
is not the same person who gets back on it. Have you heard that? Maybe you're not around equestrian people like I am. <laughs> I'm not either, I just know this saying for some reason. But see, when you fall off a horse, you have a much healthier appreciation of your own riding skills, don't you? And a much healthier appreciation for what a horse can do. Now again, theoretically you might know this stuff, but that experience drives it deep and, and solidifies it. And this is what was going on with Peter. Here's a guy who's, uh, I'll get out of the boat and I'll walk on water, I'll, I'll die with you, um, I'll chop off ears of people who come and arrest you, that sort of stuff. You know, full, full of himself, impetuous, uh, ready to take on the world, thinks he can do anything, gets to a point where he is tested, is shattered by his own inability to, to follow through with his own convictions. That guy coming out of that on the other end is going to be, if he goes with it, if he goes with God in this and he experiences the grace and forgiveness and restoration, which we know he does, he's going to come out at the other end of that a very different person, isn't he? He is going to be utterly transformed. The type of person you might guess that would be suitable to be a leader in this new movement that Jesus was about to birth. Not someone who shot from the hip anymore, but someone who was far more considered in their approach to everything. So knowing, I'll finish with this, knowing what he knows about the failure that Peter's going to have, Jesus says this thing to him, when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. When you have returned, not if, when you have returned. It seems that Jesus has more faith in us than we have in ourselves sometimes, yeah? It's like he's saying, you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. You have no idea what you're about to go through and how devastating that is actually going to be. But you know what, Peter? When you return, in other words, you will survive this, Peter. You will come back from this better than when you went in. And when you come back from this, I want you to strengthen your brothers. I want you to use that to help others. See, our mess is not an impediment to our purpose. It's the pathway to it because our mess not only becomes our making, it becomes our message as well. Okay? It is not an impediment. It is the pathway. It becomes our making and it becomes our message. And why I say that is because you can't give away what you don't have. You cannot spruik uh, stuff just off the top of your head, the party line, the theory, the Sunday school answers, the stuff we think we should say, the stuff we go through gives us the ability to speak with authority. Biblically, when the Bible talks about to know something, it means through first-hand experience, not through the impartation of information into our brains. It means through first-hand experience. So whereas we think we know, after we've been through the ringer, we know. We know. And so we are able to speak from a place of, I get it. There is an empathy and there is a sympathy and a sensitivity and an understanding in what we say that is not there previously because we've just had to live this and experience it ourselves. There is a qualitative difference between someone who's telling you what they read in the Bible and someone who's lived it, yes? A qualitative difference. Failure makes you dependent. How can you encourage others to trust God if you've never had to trust God? Being forgiven makes you forgiving. What about in John 20, 21, where you get that amazing story 
of Jesus restoring Peter. You know, Peter's gone back to fishing because he's given up. And why wouldn't you give up? You've just done the thing you said you would never do and betrayed the person you loved more than anything in the world and you realise you didn't have the moral courage to do it. That would be devastating. So he's gone back fishing. Jesus turns up and he says, Peter, do you love me? And he's like, yes, you know I love you. And what does he say to him? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Like, you know I love you. Okay, take care of my lambs. There is this reinstatement. It's like, Peter, we both know what's happened here. We both know what's gone down. But you know what has not changed, Peter? My call on your life. You thought, you thought that was the end of it. Uh-uh, that was the making of you, mate. This is why you're going to be the leader I said you were going to be. This is why you were going to be foundational in my church because you know what it is to have completely lost all confidence in yourself, to have failed dismally, but now I'm going to extend grace and restoration to you so you can now impart that to other people. You can, you can bet that the guy that stood up that first day in Acts and said, let me tell you about this thing that's going on here when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost was not the same guy that said, I will never deny you. He was radically transformed. He no longer had faith in his own abilities. He had faith in Jesus and his confidence in him to be in him and to do through him what he needed to be and to do. And he knew what it was to be forgiven. Can you imagine Peter ever not forgiving someone in the future? Yeah? It's like that parable, isn't it? The guy who's, who's forgiven a whole ton of money will not forgive the guy who owes him 20 cents. You cannot imagine Peter not forgiving people after this. Or when people fail, who would be the most sympathetic or empathetic to failure going forward? Peter. Peter would. He'd be like, hey, give him a chance. Because if you haven't heard, let me tell you about this story. It's going to be talked about for a couple of thousand years. Someone's going to put it in the Bible. Thanks a lot for that. Okay. Matthew. Luke. Okay. Want to see that in heaven, hey? <clears throat> I love that story in, I can't remember which gospel it is. And I know today it looked like I know the Bible off by heart when I cued Jake when he forgot. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good, but not today. Um, so, I, and the woman who gate crashes um, Simon the Pharisee's party and, and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. And, and Simon's like, oh. If you knew what sort of woman this was, like seriously, and, and Jesus says, Simon, when I came here, you did not offer me even a bowl to wash my feet. But this woman has washed her feet with my tears, washed my feet with her tears and, and dried them with her hair. And let me tell you why, Simon, because whoever has been forgiven much loves much. And it's somehow Jesus was kind of saying, you know, the expressions of aspects of our faith are directly proportional to our experience of them. You know, we, again, we can't give away what we don't have. But when you know yourself forgiven, and, and I think the assumption is that it was Mary Magdalene that had, that had done this. And Mary Magdalene had been saved. I mean, she apparently a prostitute, seven demons in her. This woman had a messed up life. But, but Jesus loves her and forgives her and accepts her. And there is this restoration with her. And so this is her expression of that love. Again, it's, it's this example of what we experience flows out of us. We can't give away what we don't have. Our experience is never just for us. It is so we can speak hope and life 
and courage into people when we come up against them and that we hear their story and they're going through hard times. And we know, we can't, like Peter, like Jesus with Peter, I can't protect you from this. I can't stop this from happening. And to be honest, I wouldn't want to. You are going to come through this. But I can tell you as someone who's come through on the other side of this particular story, you, you will value this. You will love it. You will learn through this. You will be transformed through this. And God will be faithful to you, you through this the whole time. I can tell you because I've been there. I've done what you're about to do now. See, it's not just about us. It's about how we can put into other people. The church needs to be a place of people who have so many of these stories to tell because there's so many people that need to hear what we have to say, yes? They need to hear that there's hope. They need to hear that that failure isn't the end. They need to hear that that mistake wasn't catastrophic. They need to hear that that mess up isn't going to define you for the rest of your life. They need to hear that the stuff that we go through that has the potential to break us and destroy us could actually be our making if we humble ourselves and we submit ourselves to this process. Rather than resist it like some sort of attack, we embrace it and we know that God is working out his purposes in us. Amen? And then we have a story to tell. So thank you guys. I think I came in nearly on time. Bless you. I, I'll just also say I have to do this because Darren tells me off if I don't speak long enough for the kids' church. Um, so, so there we go. So how about we stand? Let's get the team up. Hey, and if anyone's here this morning that would like to talk, would like prayer for anything at all this morning. You know, don't, don't come here and go away carrying the same stuff. Um, Come, come up, just come up the front here, just on, sit on the front, and we would love to pray with you this morning. But let's stand, let's get the team up, thanks.